What's our term? Better than term. Oh, really? Oh. Well, because I've not had to educate anybody. Do they entertain each other? Yeah, but for they, they veer from one end of the spectrum to the other. They go from lovingly sat, embraced, watching something on the telly or sharing a game to yeah. tearing strips off each other in a matter of seconds. Right. So you can only leave them alone for so long. You're Before describing the, the behaviour of my pet cats. Yes. It's almost exactly the well, same. They are, they are also brothers. Uh, we, this, this, is, this is our first half term, I think. No, it can't be our first half term. Why does it feel like it's our first half term? It isn't our first half term, but it is, it's a challenge. I've taken three days off. He doesn't want to play with me. He's not interested. It's very, and you can't go anywhere. It'll also allow you to um, be a little bit less neurotic about your internet speeds. And uh, I just wanted to bring this to your attention uh, because you'll like it, Rory. Mm. Uh, Cody Schultz, who's emailed before, emailed, and he has kept going the, the sense of great seriousness around internet mm. speeds. Internet speeds are very important. <laughs> I mean, I started reading this email when I came in. I was like, well, I'm, I'm waiting for the, for the twist or the gag. There was none. So was don't it, expect it. <laughs> it, it, was, it was just about internet speeds. Dear Ron, Brick, Brian and Champ. Nice. Uh, SPM217 brought forward an odd comparison that I had not thought about before. Internet speeds between the US and the UK and the rest of Europe, I suppose. Here in the US, I live in an area that is technically rural. I mean, I'm surrounded by farms, so it's not that much of a surprise, but I am able to get internet speeds of 1,000 megabits per second. No, you're not. Download and 1,000 megabits per second upload through fiber optic cable. That comes to anywhere between 300 and 600 over Wi-Fi, depending on where I am in the house. I was actually able to get a great deal on the speeds as well, paying less than the 50 megabyte speeds with a different company. Is anything like this available in the UK or are the 200 megabit speeds mentioned in the episode the best available? You see, it's, it's, it's just this is the serious people, point. This is, the, this is the stuff people like. <laughs> Does he live somewhere, though? Because he, is he so rural that he's the only person <laughs> using the internet and therefore he has exclusive access to it? I don't. So as far as I know, this is, this is now becoming like a technical, like a, an IT support podcast. Brilliant. It's the dream. As, as far as I know, Virgin definitely advertise their 200 mega thinnies per second as the fastest available, but I don't know whether that's true. I think they now have a 500-ish. Right, okay. Um, but yeah, we're not talking the thousand. So wherever you are, Cody, let us know because um, I'd li- love to know specifically. I'd like to Google map the best places of internet coverage in the world. But that can't be, that, that feels wrong to me that, that somewhere <laughs> rural should have five times quicker than than sort of British cities. What's it? I mean, I presume it's quicker in London. I presume there is more internet in London. There's more everything in London. Would you, I think the tubes are wider in London. So it sends yeah, more well, internet yeah. down the you tubes. Get, get a train down them. Massive. <laughs> yeah, think of all that, think of all that information. <laughs> this is Set Bees Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, the greatest romance ever sold, and Rory Smith, the greatest story never told. Uh, unfortunately, we're still without Andy Hinchcliffe, who I know is very grateful um, at all the kind messages that you've been sending to him via us. So from him and us, thank you. He has promised that he will return at the earliest opportunity. Uh, the food is our continuing suggestion that you might like to donate to a food-related cause that's either dear or indeed, just as usefully, near to you. We've suggested just that for a couple of our number. And if you have any suggestions that you'd like us to bring to the wider attention of our generous listeners not putting them under any pressure whatsoever to part with their hard-earned cash, uh, then email setpiecemenu at gmail.com. In the meanwhile, let's point you in the direction of the food bank local to listener Chris Tranter, who tweeted us to say he donated to the one most suitable to his location in Australia 
if you'd like to do the same, whether or not it makes geographical sense, it is foodbank.org.au. That's foodbank.org.au. You can select Victoria from the drop-down menu to get his in Melbourne. Uh, we'll try and mention one a week for the foreseeable future, but thank you to Chris and all those others who are getting in touch. Please keep them coming in, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Do you think we now going to get loads of emails with people mentioning their internet speeds? And is it weird that I would be interested in that? If people want to get in touch with us regarding internet speeds, direct it to Rory exclusively. <laughs> there is no need to flood us all with the nonsense. F-A-O Rory, comma, the geek. Uh, the football is a conversation about goats. Uh, it's not that we've had some sort of livestock-related epiphany, just that there's been a lot of talk about them recently, and Stephen is annoyed. So like any sensible adult male, he's going to use the opportunity to shout about it to his other adult males as therapy. Uh, so that is to come. You can get in touch with the podcast, same email address, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube as well. Last week, uh, we anointed a second John Wood as an SPM Buffalo. So this is an email from John Wood to colon Buffalo. Dear 24-hour party people, I only wish my father was still alive so I could share with him my absolute joy at being designated a buffalo by my favourite podcast. When I said in Google Latin that Rory was Cato Claris Atque Facetum, which he didn't, he said Cato Claris Atque Ridiculam. Ridiculam, yeah. Um, yeah. Still, if you put that into to Google, I still don't know what Cato Claris Atque Atque Facetum is. I should have said that he was Brillante a Spiritoso, which I think is just... Italian, right? That just sounds Latin. Italian, yeah. So, Hannah, do we have any clarity on what Cato Claris Atque no. Facetium is? He's just sending us the Latin without saying what he wanted it to be in English as. Is Claris with a U? Claris with a U. It's, yes, it is now Claris with a U. Cato must be the guy Cato. There's no other option. It's, it's a person. Who yeah, Cato's person a guy. Is? I have no idea. And he was why a John Wood knows about him. Cato was a rhetorician. Cato's quite famous. Cato, I just remember with a K. You should have heard in, of Cato. In the, the Pink Panther movies. Not him. Yeah, I'm still no, none the wiser, to be honest. This is upsetting me enormously. After that, I thought I was done with Google Translation. John, you're not, you didn't even complete that. But I was wrong, says John. I am not, like all of you, schlauer als der Durchschnittliche Bar. And I don't know what a buffalo is. Do we know what schlauer als der Durchschnittliche Bar is? Even with your amazing pronunciation, no. This is apparently, and I don't know if he's a Paddington fan, but it means uh, smarter than the average bear. Well, that's not Paddington, is it? That's Yogi. Oh, is that Yogi? That's Yogi Bear, yeah. Damn it. I thought I was clever. I didn't. That was one thing I didn't Google. So when I want to know what something means in Latin, Italian or German or set piece menuish, I turn to Google. Unfortunately, when looking up buffalo, I found these answers slash translations. The Urban Dictionary defines a buffalo as being mad as fuck at someone. <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia describes buffalo as meaning to bully, harass, or intimidate, or to battle. Well, we knew that one. That's 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 the root of the of the thing, isn't it? So, if that is what a buffalo is, I must go with Groucho Marx and say I refuse to join any club that would accept me as a member. Or you can tell me what a buffalo is, and I can go back to thinking my father is finally proud of me. And that's from John Wood Buffalo in Huntington Beach. So, the the genesis, the etymology of buffalo on this podcast in particular is particularly nebulous. We just decided that we wanted a friend of the podcast term, and Rory, I think you just grasped at buffalo well, for, no, for very few reasons. No, we've been talking about the fact that you can construct a sentence, a grammatically correct sentence out of the word buffalo either nine or 13 times in a row i can't remember which one it is it was, but you... it was nine letters it was nine buffaloes in a row was a grammatically correct sentence that's it? right yeah and we then decided that regular contributors to the to the podcast would be known as buffaloes 
It's language at its best. Uh, Ryan Parks has got in touch from Chicago to respond to episode 216 about managers' teams and players' teams. Greetings, gentlemen, he says. Congratulations on your nomination for the FSA Podcast of the Year. It is well-deserved, and if I had a vote, you'd receive mine. Uh, He later, for clarification, sent another email saying, I have a vote, and you have received it. Um, so I don't know why he assumed that he could vote for us. Uh, more fair, of that I, later. So I think we'll... he, I think he might have more than one vote. <laughs> yes, just keep going, please. I don't. Right. I don't think Smartmatic are in charge of the FSA awards. <laughs> Smartmatic are just about to be two billion plus dollars richer. So let's be nice to them. Uh, while watching the Manchester United West Brom draw this weekend, I reflected on the content of SBM two one six while the broadcast shot to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer on the touchline. Does a team receive a manager's or player's team designation partially due to the manager's activity and body language? from the bench. When the camera cuts to Ollie, he is frequently sitting, appearing concerned and or confused and is rarely directing his players. This is not the first time I've thought that Solskjaer does not realise that he actually has some control of the events unfolding in front of him. Comparing that to Pep or Klopp barking out directions or the well-documented Bielsa squat throughout a match, I thought that I had connected some dots on this subject matter that were not mentioned on the pod. Recognising that cameras are not transfixed on managers at all times, they kind of are, these shots at key moments can have a disproportionate effect on fans' reactions during games. I can picture in before times a pub full of fans yelling do something you at the television without actually having a suggestion on what it is that the manager should be doing keep up the good work and best wishes to the Hinchcliffe family kindly from Ryan Parks I think there's an element of truth in that but I'm not sure that I think there's a broader there's a broader impetus behind it so at times someone like Solskjaer sitting there looking like a kind of anxious teenager which is what Oli Gunnar Solskjaer looks like quite a lot of the time it, it doesn't help. It kind of compounds the impression. But I, I think he, even if he was up on the touchline like, like Antonio Conte, I, I suspect that the broader thing about Man United would still, would still be, it's all about Bruno and Pogba rather than it's about Solskjaer. I think it's, it, that feeds into it, but the, the actual kind of genesis of it is, is broader. And he's not the only passive manager on the touchline. He's not the only one in the Premier League. Carlo Ancelotti isn't constantly ranting and raving and he's had plenty of success in his life. Thank you for all your emails about last week's episode about using statistics more responsibly. It has exorcised a lot of you. Here is just taste. Daniel Whitford writes, Dear Podders, I really enjoyed SBM 217, although I have no quantifiable statistic to measure my enjoyment. (laughs) So now I'm not so sure. As a professional non-football data wrangler, this episode brought to mind Goodhart's Law, usually stated as, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. For example, pass completion may be a good measure, but if it became a target, it would encourage players to make easy, unadventurous passes to please the metric, even though it would make their overall game worse. By the way, I don't know why pass completion got such a kicking in the pod. Surely possession is the most overrated stat. It doesn't even measure what it describes, and it's used as lazy shorthand for being in control, even when the number is contrary to the evidence of our eyes. I wonder if the pod thinks that there are any stats that have got into players' heads to such an extent that they act in counterproductive ways because they are chasing that particular metric. If so, is that driven by the media or by modern coaching methods? I'm thinking of assists as a candidate, but I can't back that up. Keep up the good work. That's Dan Whitford. Past completion is, is something that players, maybe not now, but certainly a little while ago, were particularly concerned about. And I think it was probably more driven by coaching, particularly at academy level, than it was by, because they were sort of pouring through the Daily Express looking for looking for their past completion statistics or even looking, you know, watching football on the TV and thinking it was important. I think there was a, there, but there was definitely a point where, where players were concerned by their past completion statistics. The bigger issue is actually, I think that because football is comprised of lots of young competitive people, everything tends to be, t- 
turned into a league table. So you're still going to, into training. Well, not now. You're not going into training grounds. But if when you were allowed into training grounds in, in, the, in the before times, you'd still see in gyms kind of lead tables for who can lift the most and who can run the fastest, who's done the, done the most, this, that, or the other in training, who's, you know, you, you quite often still see players posting um, images of their victorious five-a-side teams from training games and stuff. They, they, they are wired, and it's, it's completely understandable, totally unavoidable to turn everything into a competition. And I think with certain statistics, that is a problem because it encourages them to... So when they see something like past completion, the, the natural instinct is I've got to have the highest past completion, whereas past completion, although, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not as bad, it's not as bad as possession in terms of a meaningless statistic. It's certainly not as bad as who ran the fastest, the Bundesliga's favourite statistic. Um, but it, it, it isn't a particularly nuanced or sophisticated way of reading it. But I think players do become a little bit fixated on making sure their past completion is high, particularly at academy level where there is a kind of don't do anything wrong so I can survive attitude. And that that's problematic as it gets, as, as the career, as your career develops a bit further. Yeah. That's, that's the reason why we would give that a kicking rather than possession because possession reflects on the team rather than individual player. So there's nothing collectively for, for them to, to gain from that particular statistic. I did have one post pod exchange on Twitter with somebody and we came to the conclusion between us that if you if you could press the reset button on which were the, the prevalent statistics used at, at halftime and immediately after the full-time whistle during a, a football broadcast, I think you would start again, wouldn't you? I think there'd be quite a few that have become commonplace that you'd now reflect upon and think, well, I'm not sure whether how relevant was shots off target to that game, corners won, number of times caught offside. There's all sorts of, of them, actually, that if you were now we have more modern analytics available to us that if you were going to pick those half dozen that immediately appeared on the screen after the, after the halftime or full-time whistle, you would, you would choose other ones than the ones that are there right now. I'm always slightly baffled by the, by the focus on shots. This sounds really stupid and a bit counterintuitive, but I'm always baffled by the, the focus on shots on target rather than shots off target because they're both such basic measures. You can have 50 shots on target that all dribble towards the goalkeeper from 30 yards out. Or you can have four or five glorious opportunities from two yards out that will fly over the bar. I'm never quite sure what either of those statistics is trying to prove. I would have thought shots in general is a better statistic than either. And shots from inside the box, maybe. Is that not the purpose of expected goals? Yeah, to, absolutely. That's the, that, assess the value of each shot. It's, um, but it, to be fair with expected goals, and, and I think that there's a degree of willful misunderstanding of expected goals. There's a desire to say, well, I don't know, even know what that means, when it's an incredibly kind of natural thing for a football fan to, to think of. It's a measure of, of how good the chances you created were. But like Steve said, I think it would be interesting if we could go back. Would you, Instead of saying we're going to do shots on target, shots off target, maybe we'll do shots from inside the box and shots from outside the box. And that might have then made the transition to expected goals, which is a really valuable and quite easy to understand measure, might have made it slightly easier. Yeah, the shots on target thing is, is, is evidenced by the fact that sometimes somebody has a shot from 45 yards out that's probably a, a misplaced pass that goes through to the goalkeeper and the, and the uh, commentator whimsically said, well, that's their first shot on target. Well, it, it had no statistical value whatsoever. And that is being, yes, referenced by the, yeah. the tone of voice that you have in delivering that. So, But by the same token... Out. And this is an extreme example. You, you quite often hear teams criticised for not having had a sh- they've not had a shot on target for sixty minutes, and they they might have hit the post four times in that period, whereas the team that's had 
10 shots on target and but they've all been from range and the goalkeeper sort of swallowed them up easily that is that that's taken as being a good thing and I think that's a really kind of that's an area where there is an easy win for people to say, look, actually, this this statistic is not doing what we think it's doing. But like, like we said, that's the responsibility of the people who are delivering the broadcast yeah. to be able yeah. to assess that and then disseminate it in a way that is helpful to the audience rather than just giving out statistics for no, with no context whatsoever. Joe McGee-Bilson has sent this in. Dear Boris, Matt, Rishi and Michael. In that's those offensive. Four, in those four, I'm still happy that Andy Definitely is not Michael. a buffalo. <laughs> Thank you, as always, for a great episode this week. I do not think anyone can deny that statistics have an increasingly prominent role in football. And this is in part due to both fantasy football and social media, as you mentioned. However, perhaps another reason is that we have much shorter attention spans. And then he says, hear me out before I guess we get distracted by something else, I guess. Um, before cell phones, he said, if you watch football, you actually watched most of the game. You could pretty easily spot that Paul Scholes or Michael Carrick, for instance, was running the game, albeit not scoring or assisting. Now, however, those players that dictate play without scoring or assisting as much are not seen as often by fans as some fans only really glance up from their phone before goals or chances as they hear the commentary suggest that a goal is about to be scored or a chance has been created. This is then furthered by fans who really focus on highlights on YouTube, for instance, which again only show the goals and the big chances, not the players who are running the show. This would also explain the point about why we only really look at goals to determine if a striker is playing well because we aren't actually watching the rest of the game to see if they are involved in link-up play etc that's uh, from joe mcgee bilson your point yeah iman per mohammed says this dear rafa roger novak and andy i'll let you decide he says who andy murray is and i'm just wondering huge promise at a young age but took a while to reach his peak before then spending more time injured than play yeah yeah andy murray is indeed chinch <laughs> The point that you all made in SPM 2 on 7, in particular Rory, about communication issues within analytics is an important one and one that I agree with. As Rory rightly said, in the social media analytics community, there is little to no explanation as to what certain statistics mean or show. And they're thrown out there in an attempt to illustrate just how clever the person who came up with them is. For example, browsing the soccer subreddit, I saw a post labeled hardest working teams in the Premier League with an attached photo of a graph plotting the 20 Premier League teams along an x-axis of challenge intensity, defensive actions permitted of opponent possession, and y-axis of PPDA, passes allowed per defensive action. There was no other explanation as to what the x or y axis meant, or indeed how to work out who the hardest working team in the Premier League was. There was no further context or communication to what the graph showed, and it was just assumed that the readers knew already. I am a very keen football fan and do enjoy the statistical breakdown of matches, teams, leagues, etc. But I was left unsure as to what I was actually looking at and what it meant. I assumed because Leeds were way out to the right and quite high up on the graph and having watched them play a lot and listening to pundits talk about how hard they work, that they must be the hardest working team in the Premier League. But I made that conclusion merely based on my own experiences of watching football and listening to others talk about football and not the graph itself. Of course, it's entirely possible that the majority of fans understand this and that I'm just incredibly stupid. I do think that there needs to be clearer communication as to exactly what the graph is trying to show, what the X and Y axes, is that the plural of axes? Axes are plotting and an example as to what it means. So for example, the team in the bottom left quadrant are passive and wasteful, whereas the team in the top right are aggressive and clinical. Something so that you can have a feel for the graph and something to make it easier to draw conclusions from thanks for all the brilliant pods you do your discussions are informative fun and quite relaxing <laughs> he says in counterpoint to the graph by the sounds of things and a welcome break from the constant football arguments on twitter and the like all the best and keep safe Iman. p.s i love var oh wow what a way to finish Stephen. there's one excellent <laughs> chalk it down there's there are people on social in the sort of social media analytics community who um who do provide graphs with that kind of guidance on it where you'll you'll get an x and y axis and it'll be split into quadrants or whatever. And it'll be, yeah, kind of, I, I saw one the other day of um, the forwards in the Premier League who taken the most shots and it was kind of split into 
taking fewer shots but higher value, taking lots of low percentage shots and two other things. And it gave you it was it made it easier for non kind of maths natives, non statistics natives to read the graph. And I think there are lots of people who who try to do that, who try to make their analytics stuff accessible. The two things I guess that I'd say about social media analytics is that there is, a, I think there is a small subsection that, that wants to, and it's the same with all the different sort of subsections of social media, you know, there's this sort of tactics Twitter who want to understand the game exclusively through tactics. There's the social media, there's transfer Twitter that believe that everything is solved by spending 75 million pounds, whatever, on a player. I think with social media, on with the analytics section, it, the same thing is true, that there's an element, of, there is an element of in-group and out-group about it, that, that they are, engaging in it for themselves and their like-minded individuals and that's totally fine but it's not necessarily some of it's not necessarily designed to get a broader audience um and the other thing is that i think that we have to separate what happens on social media and what happens within within football itself that that there is i don't think people are presenting players with graphs that doesn't mean that the graphs aren't valid but I suspect that it's a bit less graph intensive within within football itself. It's more taking those learnings. It's it's the analysts looking at the graph and saying, right, we can see that I don't know, Mohamed Salah's taking lots of lot storing lots of goals, but he's taking lots of low percentage shots, and that's how he's doing it. He's kind of racking up his XG. And maybe we then go to we, the analyst then takes that to Klopp and says, maybe tell Mo not to do this, that or the other, and to do a bit more of this and a bit less of that. I think that those two things are are separate. And, and that's exactly why, and it's the other side of the coin of the broadcasters being in a position to understand the raw data to be able to then tell st- tell the story yeah. of that data. Football clubs are doing it. The football clubs don't give players a graph and say, yeah, you figure it out. They have people to be able to translate that into something meaningful. It is the broadcaster's job, if we are going to be embracing statistics, to use that analytical data to be able to then tell a story. That's why it's vital. That's why it's interesting. That's why we should be using it. But it is the responsibility of those, perhaps some of which do not necessarily understand it to enough of an extent to do that. So they need to catch up. They need to be able to tell that story because they understand the data that's being presented to them. Uh, Finally, after his soccer story last week, Gregor Muir has responded to the suggestion made without hesitation by Rory Smith that Gregor's father might have enhanced an element or two of the tale, particularly the part where he apparently plucked a long diagonal pass out of the air with, and I quote, a velvet touch before spanking a volley into the far corner in his match against some poor, lowly German people. Uh, Thanks for using my, well, my dad's soccer story, says Gregor. A nice surprise slash possible sign of barrel scraping at the end of episode 217. (laughs) At least one, probably both. I agree that my father's tale is definitely embellished, but 40 odd years after the fact, it seems harsh to apply storytelling VAR to it now. Why don't we agree to split the difference and say that he took the pass out of the air with a velvet shin? Uh, kind regards, <laughs> as from Greg. Correspondence of any kind, particularly soccer stories from your own lives, don't forget, believable or not, uh, we will not judge, well, we'll judge, uh, to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Now, it's probably because he loves the Canadian sport played by those in the NHL, but you may have noticed that Stephen Wyeth is rather predisposed to slighting the pursuits of those in the one-letter different NFL. (laughs) This reached fever pitch following Super Bowl 55, when the conversation turned to Tom Brady's achievement, his seventh title, elevating him beyond the fate accompli of him being the greatest of all time in his own sport to the possibility that he might be the GOAT in any sport to prevent him frothing at the mouth for an extended period of time. We've given them the chance to weigh in on that while also attempting to remember that we are football of the other kind podcast. So applying the principle of Stephen's ire to soccer, if possible, that in an effort to provide something of an equilibrium will in turn make Rory furious. So today we talk goats. Should there be goats 
Why are we obsessed with goats? And most importantly, is that how you should pluralize goats? Uh, we have spoken before and fairly recently too about the futility of attempting to compare footballers across the generations. So we will attempt to continue this conversation by not repeating too much of that one. Stephen, the floor is yours. I now put on a, well, I would say NFL helmet to protect me from the fury that is just about to emanate from you. American exceptionalism is, is a lot of things, but believing that an athlete who plays a specialised position in a sport that is only the most popular in one country and only remotely popular in two is the greatest athlete who has ever lived is a great example. Not my words, the words of Top Gear magazine, no. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody who gloriously was retweeted on this subject by Rory's boss, Andy Das, in the run-up to Super Bowl LV. And that was what started this thought process in that, isn't it extraordinary the way that followers of different sports analyse their sporting heroes and make judgments upon them? Because so much of the conversation either side of the Super Bowl was about whether, certainly from an American point of view, whether Tom Brady or Michael Jordan were the greatest sportsman or sports person who had ever lived. And any suggestion from any other avenue as to how that might not be the case and the discussion needed to be broadened out was rebuffed in any number of different ways. If somebody mentioned Serena or Roger Federer or Tiger Woods, no, 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 no. Those are individual sports. You can't compare individual sports with team sports. So people will say, well, well what about Maradona or Messi or, or Ronaldo? No, no, that's soccer. No one cares about soccer. Or even more implausibly, soccer's too low scoring to be taken seriously as to whether you can be the GOAT if you play soccer. So, so, so if, it's, if it's harder, to achieve your ultimate aim in that sport, that makes it less easy to make a judgment. They were all, and it just made me think, we don't really on this side of the, of the Atlantic, when we're talking about our sports and, and, our, and our great sports people, analyze them outside of, very often outside of their sports. I'd suggest Messi and Ronaldo were the only two that people ever talk about as being the greatest footballer who ever lived. We're much more likely to have a discussion about whether they are the greatest at their particular pursuit in terms of the position that they play, for example. So what is it about sport on, in, in North America where they talk about athletes in the context of being the greatest across all sports compared to on our side of the Atlantic when we're more likely to try and give somebody the credit for being the greatest batsman who ever lived, the greatest bowler, the greatest all-rounder, the greatest fly half, the greatest central midfielder. We, we talk about it in very different terms in, in, in analysing greatness. I don't know whether that's entirely true because I think if you think about someone like Lewis Hamilton, there is a there is a sort of bubbling debate about whether he is Britain's greatest ever sportsman. Well, there you and go. it was the so same that's... with Andy Murray as well after his second yeah. Wimbledon title. So there you go. But that then is the other example of Britain's greatest sports person. Yeah. Nobody is suggesting that Lewis Hamilton, by having won so many Formula One World Championships, is literally is, the greatest athlete the, of all time. Is the greatest yeah. athlete of all time. Yeah because that would lead you into a discussion about what is and isn't a sport. So yes, that was the, that's the other subcategory that I didn't get onto yeah. in terms of discussing whether somebody is a nation's greatest sports person. Why are Brady and Jordan not being put on a pedestal as the greatest exponents of their sport? Surely that is 
as great an achievement as anybody deserves, really, bearing in mind it is so difficult to compare sports. I'll, I'll, I'll come in on that because Rory's probably got a much wider and more in-depth point to make. And I, I just want to respond to that. It, the American exceptionalism that you're talking about, that, that this is something that, that pervades throughout American sport. US sports are, if you win it, you are the world champion. That is the vernacular they use. Now, you will argue it's because only they play it. And that is true. But it is also a sense that if you win in America, you are the world. You are the champion of the world just by be, winning the, the sport within the boundaries of America or North America, if it's NHL or the other sports that go into Canada. So you have an issue where you have a sense of probably self-aggrandizement, which is something that from this side of the Atlantic, we are always mocking. Uh, but given that that is the case in America, you can understand that the leap is made, therefore, from greatest in their sport, greatest in America, therefore greatest in the world. I, I can understand that the, the bubble of American sport and that soccer lives outside of that bubble despite its ever-growing popularity. But I don't quite buy the idea that you take the leap from man wins Super Bowl for seventh time and is therefore better than man who won NBA championship eight times. Because even within the bubble of a nation's sporting passions, there is more than one sport. So making that, that leap to compare just those two men, even if you drill it down to that, seems bizarre to me when, when the, the thing that they do is so very, very different and, and the amount of time that they spend doing it is, is not the same either. Uh, my, really, my much broader, wiser point was going to be that Tom Brady technically only plays half of American football because he doesn't do any defending. Exactly. So, so how... He's maybe the greatest player of all time in the half of the one sport that he I plays. Will, I will rise up and defend that because if you think principally applying that point to any sport, are you going to tell me that if the greatest player of all time in football is a goalkeeper, they, they aren't weighing in scoring goals or Lionel Messi doesn't do enough play at right back? You know, this, that, that is the same in all sports. Even if they're not on the field, they are not contributing 100% of the time to all facets of the game in which they are participating. But Hugh, Hugh Derek Ferris, there is a reason... <laughs> That that that's not so far away from the truth, actually. There is there is a there is a reason that the greatest player of all time is not a goalkeeper. That and you, you've just touched clear, upon it. Clearly, clearly, I was making the extreme yeah, like, to make the general point. Work rates is very clearly part of of what constitutes greatness. But that, and but, Brady, ultimately, I will I will be prepared to have this conversation about Tom Brady when he's he's been a linebacker as well. Do you know what I mean? Just within the Pull last week, out. Work, work, within, rate, work rate rules out 80% of sports. Within the last week, Hugh, I have commentated on a game in which the goalkeeper came up for a corner in stoppage time. Exactly. In a vain attempt for his team to equal, equalise in the, in the late, late stages. Tom Brady is never on the field when his team is defending a four-point lead in the final few seconds of a game. Never. And he never when, would be. How, how are Brady... they defending a four-point lead? How have they got the four-point lead? I know, but he's not on the field. That's the whole point. Even Messi traps back for corners late on. <laughs> Ronaldo's <laughs> often in his own penalty area, yeah. heading the ball away. Marks the near post. The, that, that, that obviously wasn't my serious point. I think the, the American thing is, is less to do with it, like some, some sort of national exceptionalism and more to do with a... I think there's a media culture of comparison. And I don't know, I'm, I don't want to... I don't... I can't speak about US media talks with any great expertise. But I think it's it's just that it becomes a kind of a topic of conversation. This player is the greatest in this sport. This player is the greatest in that sport. That's a, that's a conversation that we all have around the world. Who is the greatest footballer of all time or whatever. 
And when you have four sports and five, I guess, including, including football now, that, that are competing for eyeballs, the advocates of each of those sports will have an interest in, in promoting their idol, their, the kind of the apotheosis of their own sport as the greatest sporting icon. And I think that that is, is less to do with kind of a worldview of kind of all that happens in America, all that matters happens in America, and, and more to do with having four sports that are, are not, quite, not quite sort of equals, but it's a much broader sporting landscape. Whereas in Europe, ultimately, you can have the conversations about who's the greatest sportsman and sportswoman as much as you like. But ultimately, to the vast majority of people, the best footballer is the most important, greatest player of whatever sport it is. Like Serena Williams is, a, is, is, is probably the greatest tennis player of all time. But ultimately, within a European context, people are a lot more concerned about who's Manchester United's greatest ever right winger. Ultimately, because the football has such a kind of hegemony over our sporting, our sporting culture. Um, whereas in the States, I think there is that competition between the sports which means that the sport, there is a natural desire to, to compare and contrast the icons of those sports. So yeah, you can, you can talk about whether Jordan is greater than Brady or Brady is greater than Jordan. You can throw in Tiger Woods and Serena and whoever else you want into that mix. All of these conversations are quite harmless and they're not doing any damage, but I would say that they are all completely pointless because the, the grounds that we're debating them on are totally meaningless. Yeah. So how on earth, how do you compare Tom Brady's seven half Super Bowl victories with all the people who are doing all the actual work, all the rest of the work for him, with Serena Williams' X number of grandstand titles. What, what, what on earth are you comparing? What, and I, I understand why media outlets want to have that conversation. I understand the power of like talking point culture where we can have a great, let's have a great discussion, a, a ruddy bloody great discussion about this lovely subject. It's kind of phone in culture, isn't it? That kind of let's, let's talk about this. And then lots of people get to have their views and there's no conclusion, but it feels as though everyone's kind of having, and then having... somebody does a podcast on it. <laughs> yeah. exactly. But what I don't understand is the, these people is, is the kind of anger that you get in these discussions of it can't be that, or it can't be them, or it has to be them, or it has to be them. And you think, Stephen, well, take note. Well, do you know what? But I knew, you, I knew you were about to jump in. It's, I'm not actually angry about the discussion per se, just why you can't accept that sports are different and the, the athletic abilities required to excel in different sports vary to such an extent that it's, it's sheer nonsense, really, to even try and suggest that anyone is the greatest athlete, even at that precise moment, let alone of all time. It's almost impossible within football. It's, it's a really pointless discussion, and it's one that, that you see kind of promoted the whole time. And increasingly, I did a thing last week on, on kind of the culture of abuse within football, which is a subject we've talked about before. Thanks once again to the podcast for providing me with a workshop for my for future content and one of the things that I didn't I, I didn't feel kind of at liberty to say is that you, if you look at like ESPN's Twitter feed now ESPN is a is a is a titan of sports broadcasting it's it's a really kind of bl blue chip destination for journalists it, it, they do some brilliant stuff they obviously hugely important in terms of providing the, the money that enables all these sports to happen it's it they do great you know they uh, this is not a criticism of ES espn i want to make that absolutely absolutely clear it's the biggest setup before a massive butt <laughs> oh. <laughs> their twitter feed is just is just sort of stoking the ire of as many people as possible it's it's kind of eyeball emojis and is cristiano the goat or does this prove that you know liverpool are the 
worst champions in history or, you know, such and such had a go at such and such. And you think, well, I'm not sure. I, to me, I think that outlets actually have a responsibility not to do that stuff because we know what happens on social media when you, when you trigger people, when you try and provoke them. We know that that leads certainly to arguments and to anger and to rancor. And I think it, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to work out that that is one of the triggers for, it sounds stupid, but things like death threats being sent to Mike Dean. If you create, if you stoke this environment where everything matters and everything's a sort of a taunt or a, a, an occasion for mockery or everything's a crisis or everything's a disaster or everything's brilliant or amazing. And then the, the flip or side is that... everything's an absolute as well. There's yeah, no that's maybe, everything's an absolute, yeah. That's maybe the best way of putting it, that you you end up with this world where people, people not only kind of connect their identities to their football team or to an individual football player, but they they take everything incredibly seriously. They they believe that everything is a slight at them. They become angry. You increase the general sense of vitriol within the conversation. And I think media outlets have a responsibility not to do that, to be perfectly honest. And ESPN aren't the only example. The Mirror do it. The Times do it. The Telegraph do it. Everyone does it. It's That is the timber of social media. And it's it's really unhelpful. And I, we, it amazes me that when you, that when, when you know, the, the Premier League and the FA and stuff write to Facebook and Twitter and the media covers it, no one in the media start, start, seems to think, well, hang on, are, are we part of this problem as well? We, is there anything we can do to help here? Rather than just saying, well, we are purely and simply the conduit through which this, through, through which this information is flowing. But the, the GOAT debate is the kind of the prime example of it. The people, if you put up something about Ronaldo and Messi, one being superior to the other, you know exactly what you're doing. And yet you sort of think, well, at least with Ronaldo and Messi, that's, there is some way of, of comparing them. They play in the same era. They've played for similar level teams. They've, they've played in the same competitions. They've faced each other. That's, that's really important. They've got different records and you can pick and choose which one of, which one of those records is, is most important to you. So ha- who, who has had the better career, Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo? Probably just about a, a sort of legitimate, valid conversation. Not an important one. Who cares? It doesn't matter. As long as you uh, include how much defending they did, because it's very yeah. important, and how good they were in goal as well, because you have yeah, to be involved right. in every, every part every of the aspect game. Every aspect of the game. Of Can't just... You know, if, if one of Messi and Ronaldo had effectively just come off at half-time in literally every single game that they'd ever played, then then that would influence the discussion. Hugh, but the, Hugh has just delivered a sentence there as though he was ESPN's Twitter feed. He really has, yeah. Although I'm in touch with Gen Z, so I'm not going to be doing any cry-laugh emojis He's anymore. He's just basically an antagonising man sat in the corner of my screen. Unwilling, it's called being a host. Un, being unwilling to accept the reality of the situation. Coming up next on TalkSport. <laughs> This is the thing. So you can you can just about have that conversation about Ronaldo and Messi, but then you try and break it out. How on earth are you comparing Messi and Maradona? How are you comparing forwards to midfielders? How are you comparing defenders, maybe not goalkeepers, defenders to attackers? The point of a team sport is that none of it functions without any without all of the other component parts. So I get why we want to have the the goat conversation within football and within within sport as a whole. But I don't get how you can be so adamant that it is one person or the other. When you think, well, yeah, Messi wouldn't have had the career he's had if it wasn't for Xavi and Iniesta. That's not, that's not heresy. That's obvious. If Messi was in midfield with Igor Biscan, he, he, he would have struggled, to Igor be perfectly Biscan, honest. Igor a known linebacker. <laughs> exactly. Where it, in the same way as if, you know, Ronaldo had ended up playing with, I don't know, Edor Biscan, then another crap footballer. But you sort of think, well, I don't understand 
the desire to, for the absolutes, to borrow Hugh's phrase, when it is so obvious that both within the context of different positions and within the context of different eras, the comparison is so difficult to make. And what's what's interesting about this, if we're just going to refer back to American sports, is that American sports have individuals within the structure of games that have more influence on it perhaps than we would normally expect footballers to do so for example if if Messi or Ronaldo was in a team with Igor Biscan it might be harder for them to score 500 600 goals in their in their lives now they are still as an individual probably having more influence on their team than anybody else which is why they are lifted up in the way uh, that they are um but yeah, M- Michael Jordan, when he played well, played exceptionally, he was able to lift his teammates and also his team. And the principle with NFL, as everybody knows, is that there is such an importance on the quality of a quarterback is that if you have a good quarterback, you have a chance. If you don't have a good quarterback, but you have, for example, great linebackers or great everything else, without a good quarterback, you are unlikely to succeed, which is why it makes it easy for the debate around a quarterback and whether they are the greatest of all time. They are elevated to that position in the structure of the game. Therefore, it is easy for them to, if they play well, to be considered part of this conversation. However, and I would say, and this is kind of me talking, not the host talking, is that the futility of the GOAT conversation is, is very much highlighted by the fact that in NFL, you have Tom Brady as the assumptive goat yes he's won seven super bowl titles five super bowl mvps he is 43 years old still at the top of his game he has won more super bowls than any other franchise put together he has a bit more super bowls than any other so you know this it's statistically it is undeniably it is easier for you to say that he is the greatest nfl player of all time because there is very little statistical evidence to go against that he has done so much for so long it makes it an easy conversation but that that is undermined and made futile unfortunately by the nfl in the couple of weeks before the Super Bowl saying that the goat against the baby goat or the kid, because Patrick Mahomes, it has been again anointed that he will be the next greatest of all time. Well, that's not how the greatest of all time works. You are the greatest of all time. You're not the greatest of right now. Nobody wants to be a gorn anyway, because it doesn't sound very good. So the greatest of all time is to be bestowed upon somebody who you have designated as the greatest of all time. So to have somebody who will then succeed you as the greatest of all time makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. So, even as I've been supporting the NFL's right to have the debate about the, the players within their own sport, I do not agree that it is a, a conversation that should be had across sports. I completely with you on that, Steve. But even if you're going to have that understandable conversation within your own sport, you are undermining it some, somewhat by diluting the term. But with, with Mahomes, is it not? It, it's possible that Mahomes will depose Brady as the greatest of all time if he wins more stuff than him. Yes, so statistically, or, he could have the weight of evidence to change the greatest of all time. But they, the, the way that it's been framed is the, to be the next greatest of all time. It's just it's ridiculous. Not, yeah, yeah. It, it, it doesn't wash with me. But and and also the the other issue that you have is that the way that Tom Brady marshals an offense is completely different to the way that Patrick Mahomes marshals an offense. Yes, they play the same game and the same position, but they have two completely incomparable styles. Does Mahomes also do some defending? <laughs> he is also <laughs> a brilliant cornerback. But he, he stays he, on he, for the other half. He's, he is, the, he is the, <laughs> the, the talented player with all the creative mastery, whereas Tom Brady is just a winning machine. So you have, he's, you know, it's difficult to compare the two, even in that circumstance. Good in the pocket. Just great in the pocket. The, but maybe we you, could have a Rory. Maybe we could have a category for who's the greatest at standing on the sidelines, wrapped in a sleeping bag, drinking a Gatorade whilst his teammates are working bloody hard. That is exactly who. Who does the best watching in the other <laughs> half of the game that they're not playing? The the most interesting aspect of this to me is that this fe- it feels like we do this more now. 
we talk about who the greatest of all time is within the context of a sport and within the context of all sports much more frequently now than we did 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Within football, I, I think I've probably always just assumed that's because we are in the Messi-Ronaldo era, that there is this ongoing conversation between the two. It, it, and it may be that it's quieting down now a little bit that they're both in the autumn of their careers, but there has for the last, I guess, 15 years been this kind of dynamic. Football has been driven by the dynamic between Messi and Ronaldo. Who is, the, who is, who is the greatest, that internal competition between the two? And I suppose I've always thought that that is why there is so much interest in the idea of, of anointing a greatest within football, but it, I suspect that it's happening in other sports too. And I, I don't quite know why that is or what that says. Well, in tennis, you've got, it's probably driven in the same way as with Ronaldo and Messi by Federer, Nadal and Djokovic's rivalry with, with Andy Murray being on the periphery of that as well. And with Serena Williams being so close to having won more Grand Slams than, than anybody else. So tennis, which is a hugely popular global sport, is probably driving that too. And then, as we mentioned earlier, Lewis Hamilton in Formula One. And, uh, and golf achieved. as well, with, with, yeah. with Tiger Woods coming close to Jack Nicholas's his record, who, who is the greatest in that. But that, that, that's also interesting because that's across um, generations in a slightly more, slightly more easy comparison, I would imagine, golf is. Also not, know, also not a sport. And what's their work rate? I mean, goodness me, if they don't have work rate, then they're not going to be the greatest of all time. Well, they're not even carrying their own clubs. <laughs> Is that lazy? Lazy. <laughs> they're doing, so they're lazy. doing less than half. Oh, and you, and it, bearing in mind, you can get wheels for them. It's not that difficult. Yeah, Some is. places even let you hire a car so you can drive. I'm confused about Stephen's ideology here. He is a massive golf fan. <laughs> <I do love laughs> <it. laughs> but but th th there is, I mean, even before Messi and Ronaldo, was there not at least an... an I admit that there were fewer platforms on which to have this debate, but there was still That's a debate good. about who was best, Pele or Maradona. Yeah, and I so, guess it, so it, it, it maybe it, felt it, more of a static conversation because yeah. by, you know, you know, obviously Pele retired by late 70s, early 80s. Maradona is effectively no longer a force after 1991. So I guess between 1991 and 2006-ish, the conversation of who is the greatest footballer of all time was about two guys who hadn't played football for quite a long time. And it it felt, you know, you had Cruyff in there and Di Stefano and, and Beckenbauer and there was, you know, Eusebio. There were a few others who might be considered, but basically it was a fairly static conversation. Is it Pele or Maradona? And you fell into a camp. And I think, to be honest, football had generally decided that Pele was the greatest of all time and Maradona was second because of his personal demons foreshortening his career, effectively. It, it feels now as though that conversation is... is and this is where the, the Brady-Mahomes comparison comes in. It feels now that that GOAT status is something that can be actively claimed almost on a week-by-week -week basis. And I find that really problematic. And I suspect it's just, it, it is just a, a sort of indictment of our media culture, which is obsessed with the absolute, which is obsessed, it's talking points, something to, to prompt debate. And what, what better kind of concentrated version of all that kind of defines our media culture is there than this person is the greatest sports person who has ever lived. When I think we all know that that's still Leonidas of Rhodes. <laughs> I mean, look, he won 12, 12 um, palm wreaths at three, at four different Olympics, three different events. I mean, come on, it's, it's Leonidas of Rhodes. He's the goat. He's just been dead for two and a half thousand years. Well, this is my this is my final point on this debate, which is that it is always infected. And I'm glad that you've brought up Leonidas of Rhodes because um recency bias in infects it way too much oh, yeah, anyway 
Um, so that, that, that that's an issue. I, I'm going to bring up a story that I've told before on the podcast about the fact that uh, at the turn of millennium, they had a big ITV show about who's the best, who are the best musicians of the last 1000 years. And uh, Bach couldn't beat uh, Robbie Williams. And it's just like, you know, it's ridiculous. And so I am now, ever since that moment, first of all, never ask the public. And second of all, don't ask about something that happened over the last thousand years for people who have only been alive for the last 20. So there is an issue of recency bias, which is where I think there, once again, that does add at least a scintilla of legitimacy to the Messi-Ronaldo debate, because th that is not infected by recency yeah. bias. It just so happens that they are recent. And that is also, in my opinion, the reason why you're allowed to have the conversation about Tom Brady being the greatest NFL player of all time. I'm not saying greatest sports person of all time, because it is not recency bias. Statistically, he is the best. He is still performing and he has done better than anybody else before him. So even though we are terribly infected by recency bias, there is a legitimacy to having the debate if you understand that the recent performers of that sport are genuinely part of that conversation. It, it just seems to me that there is enough adulation to go around for our sporting heroes that you don't also need to seemingly crave the, validate, the validation of taking it outside of your specific sports. What is wrong with saying that Tom Brady statistically is the greatest American footballer who has ever lived. That seems a fairly reasonable judgment to make and does not uh, does do nothing to diminish his achievements. And I don't really see how his achievements are elevated by suggesting he's a greater, greater sports person than Leonidas of Rhodes. The, when, well, when he isn't. The <laughs> Leonidas of Rhodes ran all of his races. He didn't get someone else to do the other half. <laughs> <laughs> Leonidas is doing the 100 yard dash and just after 50 he just said you know what can you help me <laughs> come on Dave you you do the, you do the last bit just, just that Dave of Rhodes <laughs> Dave of Rhodes the... he took a he took a mile off whilst a larger gentleman did a bit and he could have a drink <laughs> there was a colossus so he could, he, he could do a mile in about five steps Hang on, think, I actually, of I, think of the education. Think I actually had a... Is that why the Colossus is in that position? Because he's doing... He's, he's doing... doing he's defending for him. <laughs> jostling people. Is it, hang on a minute. In, in the Olympics, uh, the ancient Olympics, uh, they didn't play British Bulldog. <laughs> jostling <laughs> to stop people getting past them. They should have played British Bulldog. <laughs> that would have been an excellent Olympic. It's the sort of thing the Greeks would, would have gone bang in for, to be honest. The... I think... You're right that it doesn't it doesn't add anything to their achievements to have this kind of slightly false conversation about who's the greatest athlete of all time. But it feels like it does. It feels like it's the ultimate praise. And at the risk of using two words that should not be uttered by people of our generation, I wonder if then there is an element here of what I'm going to call standing and shipping culture, which is what young people call liking stuff. So you kind of get this standing obviously comes from the Eminem song Stan. And shipping is, I presume, a, an abbreviation of worshipping. Um, there is this tone on social media that if you are a fan of something, you have to defend it to the absolute hilt. And you see it with stuff not just like football, but K-pop. Like K-pop stands are a genuine, actually quite powerful force on social media. It was, it was the K-pop stands who did that thing with Trump's... At Tulsa. Of, the Trump's rally, rallies yes. in Tulsa, yeah. And, and booked it out and then didn't go, so it was empty. They have an actual kind of, they are a kind of paramilitary force. People like Korean pop music. And in a way, it's, I mean, it's, it's really impressive. And it's obviously nice for people to like things, like, like whatever you like, it's not a problem. But it does seem to be that there is, a, there is an inherent competition to social media, not just for likes and follows and retweets and stuff like that, but for that kind of 
demonstrable, obvious display of I love this thing more than you. My love for this thing is more pure than it is for yours. I remember during the Women's World Cup, a few of us noticed this trend on on um, on USWNT social media of kind of effectively wishing that Rose Lavelle would kill you in a really sort of graphic way as a way of kind of pledging your fealty to Rose Lavelle. And look, Rose Lavelle is worth pledging fealty to because she's a brilliant player. But it would be kind of Rose Lavelle, run me over, run me over with your car, Rose Lavelle. <laughs> and you think, well, I'm not quite sure what this means, but it's quite funny. And I think it's I think that the GOAT conversation plays into that, that there is a desire not just to say Lionel Messi is my favourite footballer or Cristiano Ronaldo is the best player of his era or Ronaldo is better than Messi. It is Ronaldo is the best of all time in all sports because it feels like the ultimate expression of your love for that person. And that, I think, comes from a much broader culture that is is rooted in kind of absolute obeisance and absolute adoration for the people who you like that maybe that's definitely encouraged by social media but has probably existed throughout. We've just never seen it. I, I mean, I remember my sister calling the hotline that they set up when Take That broke up. They had to set up a hotline when Take That broke up. Well, maybe when Robbie left Take That, it might, they, might, they might not even have broken up full stop. No, no, so, they're still going. So yes, it have to, it have to be when Robbie left, yeah. No, but they, 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 they also broke up. Take That stopped for a bit. Not in my heart. No, maybe not in your heart. You maybe called the hotline as well. But they, that <laughs> well, stuff. If he was... didn't. The problem. If he if he'd called the hotline, maybe that the reality would have sunk in. Yeah, possibly they could have done you done you a service it. there, Hugh. To be honest, but I I wonder how wonder how much that is that is something that has always been there. That within youth culture there is this kind of naked adoration of 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 idols and of heroes and of people like that. And the, the goat conversation is just a way of expressing that within a sporting context. Uh, a reminder to keep your soccer stories coming into us at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. They really do help us fill a chin-shaped hole. We will return to soccer stories next week, but we wanted to just take a moment at the end of the show to ask you a favour. We have been nominated, as was briefly alluded to earlier, for the podcast of the year at the Football Supporters Association Awards. You may remember this happened two years ago as well. So twice in three years is something this little independent operation is quite proud of. It's also likely this is as far as the journey goes because this little independent operation has absolutely no chance of winning. Even in the face of that self-deprecating reality though, we would still like to play the game because unlike me as a young child, we will simply not pick up the ball and go home if it becomes clear that we won't be beating our older brother for the 78th straight time at the local park. So. Despite the futility of the contest, we'd still love you to vote for us because mobilizing the SPM army will at least give us the kind of hope that will sustain us until the inevitable reading out of that Peter Crouch podcast on the occasion of the awards ceremony. So head to the FSA website, which is www.thefsa.org.uk and click on the awards link where you'll be able to choose us, even if you listen to and likely prefer all the other podcasts. FSA, thefsa.org.uk. That's thefsa.org.uk. Maybe we could mobilize the K-pop. If we can um, get in, if we can get into the K-pop vote, this is we can we can wipe the floor with not only Peter Trouch, but also Monday Nightclub, which if you're not gonna vote for Sebby's Men, you should you should definitely vote for. I, I think I think Max and Barry are already in with the uh, the K-pop lot. Yeah. Excellent. So if you could help us out with that, thefsa.org.uk or indeed any other social media operations which get you in touch with the K-pop army. Thanks for going through the motions of this. So that is thefsa.org.uk. Now, you've only got until 9am, that's UK time, 9am on Monday the 22nd of February. That is only a few days. So do it now because people who listen to the BBC and read The Guardian may be the kind of people who are either too old to remember or too hipster to care. So maybe there is a chance after all. 
get that vote in the fsa.org.uk just click on the awards link and go down to podcast of the year and uh, click on us please subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule thank you to Stephen and to Ori and to you all for listening we'll be back with another set piece many of you to enjoy very soon indeed should we start spreading a rumor that some of the other contenders are have got kind of fruity political views just to make them make them <laughs> seem toxic that might be that might be the way to do it okay so one rumor per one rumor per, po- per podcast it would be nice. It would be nice for all the other podcasts, you know, all the other independent podcasts. If we won that, wouldn't it? It would prove that you know the, we're the David. Everyone likes David. Yes, and Peter Crouch, very much a Goliath. Very much a Goliath. <laughs> if we could just hit him in the face with a catapult, that would be ideal. David, in many ways, the greatest athlete of all time. <laughs> what <laughs> would David have done in a slingshot contest with Leonidas of Rhodes? David at least turned up with the right weaponry. We've on, on, in the week that we've been nominated, we've done an entire podcast in which we've barely mentioned football. So not yeah. exactly enhancing our chances. But look, people people are going to be taking it as a you know our, our kind of back catalogue, our, our our work over the course of the year. It's not one one individual episode. And also, to be honest, I think if anyone's listening to this for football and insight, and they're still with us after five years, they're obviously their standards are low. Do you know what I mean? That is, this is not the this is not the place to come for football and insight. And look, they have to admire that we're here week in, week out. I mean, the Peter Crouch podcast, they're working about as hard as Brady is. Well, they, yeah, they, they exactly. Do six, six episodes and then they take a few months off. So come on.